Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Here on Gone Cold, we often hear about what investigators do to try and solve a crime. For many, it's tedious, tough, and they're supposed to put their emotions aside to get the job done. The nation's largest crime scene was the attack on September 11th, 2001. We all have the stories about where we were. I was driving. I was in class. I was at work. We watched in disbelief, still wrapping our minds around it today. But first responders, medical personnel, and emergency workers, they jumped into action. They rescued, recovered, cataloged, and identified victims. Obviously, we can't interview everyone. So if you were part of that effort, thank you for what you did. We did interview two people from the Delaware Valley who were called to go up to New York City for about three weeks of their lives. They were miles away from each other and they don't know each other, but in a sense, they worked together. As with any crime scene, there are times when in this episode, it's hard to listen. It may not be for everyone, specifically when we're talking about the recovery effort. John Taggart is a veteran crime officer in the Philadelphia Police Department. He's seen it all. He's worked on cases where bodies were pulled out of walls, cemeteries, fields, basements, the water. But he said nothing could have prepared him for ground zero. I had court that day, I remember. And um, I probably only had five, I don't know, five years in, in the unit. So I got up probably like quarter or seven, got dressed. And before I went out the door, the, the two planes had hit. And then you start to hear the third one hit, and then the fourth one crashed. And you're like, what the hell is going on here? And then word started getting around that they're probably going to ask us to go up. And, you know, because Timothy was the police commissioner, and he was from New York. And then Thursday, four of us went up. I was part of that group. When you heard it, was it on TV? Was it a phone call? Was it KYW? TV. It was TV. It was TV, but I probably listened to KYW on the way in the work. I just remember when we got near the art museum, like how blue the sky was. Like you could see, you could see everywhere. It was, and you're like, are one of these buildings going to get hit? Who calls you and says, guess the what, you're going? The lieutenant in the unit said, yo, or, do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah. So he called Thursday. I just got home from work. And I'm like, yeah. So he goes, well, you got to get here as soon as you can. We're, we're pulling out like really fast. I'm like, okay. I remember just flying into work. And so you get up there, and what's your first 
What's your first memory of seeing New York City? Well, I'm, I drove. And when you got pretty close, you could see the smoke and all. Well, you didn't have to get that close. I mean, those buildings were huge. You know, you could see them. If People won't realize how big they were. Like halfway up the turnpike, you could see them. They weren't there. You know, as you got closer, there was just smoke there. And and it was like a yellowish-green kind of smoke. I remember that. And then you start to realize, like, where, what the hell are we going to do? We don't have a tent. <laughs> like, I had no idea, like, what we were in for. So it was kind of like, was it being run and led by NYPD and then you guys were kind of the assist or were you guys on your own as a group? I think we were detailed to the evidence collection team. And then from there, the crime scene unit grabbed us a couple of times. But I remember that, that originally we were with the evidence collection team. They sent us to a shrink first and they said, you're, you're going to see stuff that you've never seen before. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Pretty, Philadelphia is a pretty violent city. I, I've seen a lot, and uh, and then from there we went we went to the, the scene. I just remember that Merrill Lynch bull. I remember we were parked there at one time, and it was there was nobody around it, which was crazy, and uh, just like six inches of, of dust that almost looked like snow. And then I remember turning the corner because like you didn't hear a lot, like it was really quiet. And then you turn the corner, and there was a pizza shop with all these firemen sitting, like, and laying everywhere, alive, but injured. Exhausted and injured. They yeah. were really, yeah, a lot, a lot of them were really banged up. And then from there, we went, you know, like another block, and, and you saw what was left, and and then you realized what you were there for. And then from there, you know, some of us would take the North Tower, some of us would take the South Tower. I've never, I've never really sat down and, like, talked about this so so the first day they wanted to go back to that millennium the roof of that millennium and it's probably one of the the one things like I really remember because we went up I want to say it was the fifth or sixth floor and then we climbed out a window onto this little roof and there was just body parts everywhere and I remember sitting there and I, on the roof, and I'm like, I don't even know how, because the buildings aren't there anymore. And all the buildings in New York seem huge. Like when you're, it, you seem like you're in a cavern, like everywhere. And this little tiny roof has all these parts, and I'm, they had fallen there. So we bagged them all up. We had two or three body bags full of just arms and legs, and it was not something you're used to seeing. And I think it had to be, like, looking back on, it was the second plane. So it was either body parts from that second plane or body parts from the the Twin Tower that got hit the second time. Just by the trajectory of everything, I I know now what what it was. This is a difficult question to ask. Do you think that anybody felt anything, pain, as they... No. No, not, not from what those parts there, based on what I see now, like where the second plane hits, it, it had to be from that plane. We bagged them up and, and, and took them downstairs. There was a big piece of the fuselage out front of the, uh, 
that hotel. What does that mean to bag them up? They were placed in separate bags, each each piece, and then collectively they were put into a body bag. I mean, to to be identified later on, that was that was the big thing people wanted to get. And, you know, you want to get it to the ME as fast as you can because it's going to start, you know, still pretty warm out. Stuff doesn't take long for things to deteriorate pretty bad. I mean, a lot of the arms and all still had hands that could be fingerprinted. We probably could have done that, but it was just easier just to ship it all to the ME's office. Of course, with all the remains found, they needed to be identified. We talk a lot about putting a name to a body on this podcast, and there's something unique to humanity about the need to have people, victims, given back to their families. I've been told that just knowing what happened to a loved one can at least allow their families to move forward. It's the not knowing they've said that's tormenting. Dr. Bridget McLaughlin is a dentist who spent three weeks in New York City just after the attack, trying to help give the names to the remains of those found at Ground Zero. You don't necessarily get a degree, like an additional degree, like a specialty degree in forensics itself. It takes a long time and a lot of classwork and field work and traveling, being involved in all different types of events to be certified. Most people come by it by learning and working in it. But that's not kind of how I did it. Like I didn't go back to school. I just began studying as much as I could about it and learning it. I interviewed Dr. McLaughlin about her time in New York. She was among dozens and dozens of dentists who volunteered to go to New York City to help. You were working just as a practicing dentist on adults, we'll say around the time of 9-11. Yeah, family dentistry. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I was involved in starting to be involved in different things with the medical examiner down in this area. I'm in Margate and um, it was the Atlanta County medical examiner at the time. So when this all occurred, I think they were just putting all hands out. Everybody can that can come or, you know, has any kind of background went. So when did you first find out about 9-11? Everyone talks about where they were. That morning, I just dropped my children off to school and I came to my office to work. I walked in the door and I looked at the television because we have a television in the waiting room. I looked at the television and I saw what I thought was an accident occurring with a small plane into the Twin Towers. Like everybody, I think, kind of felt that way. Nobody really realized the magnitude. And I was standing there and I was like, no, this isn't something like that as I was watching it unfold. And then, of course, the second plane came along and hit. And that was that. I went, you know, we all went and got our children and we all came back and, you know, we closed the office and, you know, everybody kind of just went home and we just watched from there. It wasn't too long after all that happened that the medical examiner called literally like Wednesday or Thursday that they called to come up. So I arranged everything with my family and I left and I went up and stayed up there and I came back maybe once or twice, and I went right back up for those three that three-week time frame. What was your first sight when you got up there? The smoke. I think I took the bus up. All I could see was the smoke from that end of the island and just couldn't even imagine what was going on. Because, you know, you never really can imagine when you're riding into Manhattan what's going on down on the ground there, you know, and then we had to get down to the medical examiner's office. So I, I got down to the medical examiner's office 
that day was okay, but we ran right shortly after that. We had some torrential, torrential rain that came through there. And everybody was, you know, staying all over the place. I happened to be able to stay at a friend of mine's house. We were stationed back at NYU is where the medical examiner's office is. And basically, we waited for everything to come there. So whatever was going on down at Ground Zero would then come to our area. And in the meantime, while we waited, of course, you saw all those people that were bringing hair samples and dental records and toothbrushes and all those DNA samples. Plus, they were setting up, you know, trailers to just figuring all those pieces out. And someone that was working there so brilliantly put was able to put a whole program together to crisscross all of the information that was being put in. So they were able to come up with some kind of a you know computer program in that short period of time that they were able to take the information that we're charting upstairs in the armory with the x-rays and things that we were taking downstairs in the morgue with maybe the information that came in from the DNA. I don't know exactly how it all worked, but that was what made everything connect. Plus there were people from coming in from all over the place to help there. Each time we sat down with a set of x-rays that came from a family or came from a dental office, three of us had to agree and teeth are numbered. We are numbered from one to 32 and, and they have five surfaces. So we all had to agree that it was a certain tooth and agree that the filling looked like it looked like, or, you know, whatever we were seeing anatomically on the x-ray, everything had to be agreed upon before we could sign off on saying, you know, we think, we think this is the person's x-rays that was brought to us, you know, to the armory. We tried to take the x-rays of whatever is there, whatever part of a, of a person, you know, teeth, jaw, head, neck, whatever we had. And then you would line, try, you know, give all that information in. So it would line up with the x-rays that you had. So you could see, and again, in the morgue, you had to agree, this is what I see. This is what we're charting. This is what we're doing. This is a certain tooth number. This has this type of filling and how many surfaces it takes up in the tooth and, you know, anything that was an anomaly that was on the tooth or anything that was, and, you know, you didn't always, sometimes you had a tooth. That was it. You know, there was a lot of very interesting days, long days that everybody just waited and put in and worked very hard. Times that you guys didn't agree on like an x-ray, um, how do you kind of get through that? Well, no, I mean, I think that we all could come to a conclusion because, you know, there weren't, you. I guess if we couldn't necessarily come up with exactly what tooth we thought it was, you could do that. You know, in a normal forensic setting, if you're in a morgue, you can take x-rays of the person that you have. And if, you know, somebody, a dentist gave us a set of x-rays, we can put both those x-rays up on the screen and say this, that, this, that matches, you know, you find the things that match. This wasn't like that. This was complete chaos. This was whoever's working on this end gets this information. Whoever is working over here gets this information. Whoever that person was that, or group was that came up with that computer program, all that was fed in. And then they were able to start weeding through, this is what matches, this is what matches. I didn't see that program. I saw some of it in action, but you know, all that type of information was fed into like a data bank because you had people from all over the world. I know you briefly touched on it, the number of teeth, the one to 32, and then there's five surfaces. So do you have to kind of categorize it as tooth one, tooth matches, tooth two matches? That's exactly what you do. You sit there with two other people at that point and you say, you know, this is what I see. Something is because, you know, people have missing teeth. People have the wisdom teeth out. People don't have teeth in certain places. Maybe they wore dentures. Maybe there wasn't a tooth. There was all kinds of versions of what goes on. So when you had something in front of you, you had to, you know, go tooth by tooth by tooth. What's there? What's not? And what do you see on that 
those x-rays and whether, you know, they were the deciding match or not, you know, how they figured that out didn't matter, but everything had to be charted. And then everything downstairs in the morgue, same thing. It was charted. If you had something that was related to the dental part of it, you had to take the time to chart what was going on and take an x-ray and see what was, what you had. Did you go to ground zero ever or? At the very end I went. Yep. It's very. That experience. Yeah. It was upsetting. <laughs> Sorry. Ooh. All this time. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Um, I think the thing that bothered me out of everything the most were all of the pictures that people put up. All the families were looking for people. It was a lot. But that's, you know, I'm sure that's not the first. Hopefully it's not going to be happening anywhere in our in our world. But, you know, these people, it was frantic. I mean, when I watch it and look at it now, all these years later, because I'm watching it all this week and I know it's 20 years, but each year I think about it. You talk about those posters and those pictures and people looking for their loved ones. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of families who who have missing loved ones. And it always seems that the missing part is what's so hard because there's still that little glimmer of hope because you don't know where they are. So you can't definitely say that they're gone. I think that just knowing that something was done, I guess, helps a family or helps a spouse or loved one. It's long enough now that it would be interesting for me to hear some of the stories, not so much the the shock stories, but like, you know, that people found some comfort. I mean, they know what all the firefighters and EMS and all those people and volunteers and everything that everybody did, you know, like what that, not what that meant to them, but like, how did it feel for them? Because everything, you know, I remember that being probably one of the most crystal clear, beautiful mornings it there it was beautiful and i still say this that song dido did um that song was playing i guess maybe it was playing in my car but that song will forever be attached to that day for me with that whole event i don't know why it was just a really pretty day and it was just one of those beautiful mornings and it was really all the things around it were were so devastating in the end you know and you start watching it now 20 years later it's it's just it's just as if it, it's right there to touch How do you think that that experience changed you as a human being and as a dentist? Well, professionally, I've never, ever been involved in something like that. So it was overwhelming at that level, although it opened my eyes even more to it's a very scary, scary world out there. (laughs) You know, like when you look at that, something like that can change your world in, in a blink or your family or your children or anything that's been happening. though. But, you know, here we are again faced with like another whole faced with another whole thing that like is another way of loss of life so traumatizing to people and so traumatizing to families and um i don't know professionally i mean i just tucked it you know it's in an an emotional pocket really because you just do what you can do and i don't know how it would have been had i not been a nurse and been part of something like that versus just have my dental dental degree and have that but you know there was just no no other way. You had to go and you had to help. 
Did it make you maybe more interested in like forensics? Have you done anything more with forensic dentistry? Have not been able to get back into dedicating the time after that. It took me a couple of years. It took me a couple of years to kind of come out of all that. But I, you know, now I wouldn't mind doing that. I mean, you know, it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot on how to how to be more humane, I guess, if that's possible. How many people do you think you identified while you were up there? Oh, I have no idea. I think that a lot of the confirmations were made through the combination of DNA and dental. I think a lot of it was made that way. Like, if you remember during that time, everybody was bringing everything they could to the armory. So thank God we at least had DNA. And then if there was anything found that was revolved around the dental, you could at least put all that information together into another thing. I don't know how it ended up breaking up. I don't know how many dental identifications. I've never heard of that number. Like, I've never heard that number because certain... Certain uh, traumas like, you know, like a fire, you could tell like we, you know, you identified X amount of people via their dental records. With this, I'm not really sure because it was such a different type of thing between the disintegration and the lack of full pieces of, you know, bodies together. I don't know that you could put a lot of it to dental. Identifying that went on for a long time, you know, everybody working up there. I worked it. I worked it. What seems like a smidgen of it, even though it was three weeks in my life, and it was, you know, I would do it again. Both forensic dentistry and DNA were used in confirming the identity of 9/11 victims, and in fact, all the remains have not yet been given back to the families. Just this week, New York officials announced they've identified two additional people from the 9/11 attacks. One of them was Dorothy Morgan. She was the 1,646th victim of 9-11. The family for the other person identified wished his name not be released. A New York Times article recently published states, for 20 years, the medical examiner's office has quietly conducted the largest missing persons investigation ever undertaken in the nation, testing and retesting the 22,000 body parts painstakingly recovered from wreckage after the attacks. Scientists are still testing the vast inventory of unidentified remains for genetic connection to the 1,106 victims, roughly 40% of the ground zero death toll who are still without a match so that their families can reclaim the remains for a proper burial. DNA technology has significantly advanced since 9-11 and it's helping those forensic officials identify the victims and give them back to their families. This episode is dedicated to all first responders who have helped carry the nation through hardship 20 years ago and most recently for the past year and a half. We are forever in debt to your service. in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 